we have been looking at a theme this year called MOVE. It goes back to last fall as we were thinking about where we wanted to go in our Sunday morning lessons this year. And uh, we were in John Micah's office. We were writing down all kinds of ideas on the board. And finally, John Micah said, you know, the one word that comes to my mind is the fact that we want to move. And as soon as he said it, I said, that's it. That's our theme for next year. And it has to do with the fact that we want to move. We want to move from where we were in 2020 to somewhere very different in 2021. And aren't you glad we have? Uh, Sister Donna Johnson's here for the first time. She came in this morning and said, first time back. And I said, fantastic. I mean, we have people every week who are finally able to come and worship. And again, if you need to uh, feel like you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. June and I were out yesterday, and she said, do you think we need to wear a mask? And I said, I don't think so right now, but if it comes a time that we need to, we'll be glad to do it. Uh, you know, many of us are fully vaccinated, others are not, and God bless you wherever you are in this walk as we try to come out of this pandemic. We started the year by looking at David and how that David did some major movements in his life is reflected in a lot of the Psalms. And so we would look at an event in David's life and follow the next week with one of the Psalms that was written about that particular event. And now for several weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus helped people to move from where they were when he encountered them to where they needed to be. Stan last week talked to us about Nicodemus and, and did just a fantastic job of talking about how that Jesus helped this old rabbi, this, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin. He helped him to begin a journey. Now, he didn't complete the journey there in John chapter 3. In fact, it would take until Jesus died on the cross before Nicodemus finally came out and said, I'm one of the disciples of Jesus. But we see that movement taking place in John's gospel. We're continuing that journey today in the gospel of John. Again, do you have your Bibles with you? Would you hold them up? Did you bring your Bible this morning? I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. Bring a pen, a highlighter, take notes. Uh, if you don't want to write in your Bible, there are booklets out. I saw three or four of them on the uh, Welcome Center out in the front lobby this morning. Go by and grab one of these. I know a lot of you are taking notes uh, in those particular journals. Use them whatever way you can. But, but take your Bible. And so if you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I want us to look at the last two verses. What, what John does in his gospel is that he tells us why he writes it. Uh, that's always helpful. If you want to know what's going on in someone's mind, just simply read what they say about it. And this is beginning in verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you haven't highlighted that text or underlined it, please do that. I mean, it helps you understand what was John thinking as he sat down and wrote this incredible gospel. According to the church fathers, as John got older and older in life, they brought to him the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and John read them and then sat down and wrote his gospel. And I've oftentimes described his gospel in the words of Paul Harvey 
as the rest of the story. I mean, he basically says, can I tell you some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't tell you? And so you have these incredible encounters in John's gospel that you don't read about in the other three gospels. And so it's just an incredible book. And one of the things that amazes me about the gospel of John is how that this fisherman, through the power of the Spirit, weaves so many layers of information and themes. I mean... The, the gospel of John is just absolutely amazing as you get into it and see what this gospel writer was doing. Now today, of course, is 4th of July. And, and just a few moments ago, we spent time celebrating communion. You know, communion is our celebration of the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, when we gather around the table, we celebrate the fact, and Doc read from 1 John chapter 1, that Jesus' blood washes away our sins and set us free. And of course, today, we celebrate the fact that our country, so many years ago, declared its independence and said, we want to be a free people. And last night, there was a fireworks show here in Hendersonville. There'll be one in Gullisville, one in Nashville. In fact, Nashville is supposed to be the biggest one in the nation. I doubt that because I'm pretty sure my next-door neighbor did that last night. I'm serious. I mean, at 11 o'clock, you would have thought a war was taking place in Madison on Neely's Bend. I mean, it was boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, okay. And June's looking at me going, you think we'll get any sleep tonight? And I'm like, I hope so. And at about 11.15, they finally stopped, and, you know, I was able to go to sleep. So... But, uh, you know, I had the sleep machine on, I had the fan, I had every noisemaker I could make. It doesn't make any difference when those things are going off. But uh, happy 4th of July. God bless our nation that we can be a people who honor him. We're in John chapter 4. Last week, Stan took us to, through John chapter 3. And, and we're not working our way through John. This is just the encounters that happen to be back-to-back in our, in our series this summer. But John chapter 4 begins with something that most of us never notice. And again, if you have a pen or a highlighter, highlight this. Uh, This is something that's going to stand out that a lot of times we don't realize. Notice what John writes. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He had just met with him. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. You have to wonder if Nicodemus told him that. You know, did Nicodemus say, listen, you're on the radar. We're aware of what you're doing. But notice what he says, what John says he's doing. He is baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. Most of us don't think of Jesus having a baptismal ministry during his time. We don't think about it. We don't think about Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, Bartholomew, Philip, Thomas, Matthew. We don't think about them baptizing people, you know, until Acts chapter 2. They had been baptizing people, y'all, ever since John's baptism. As soon as they started following Jesus, they were preaching, repent. How do you repent? By being baptized. You know, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins but not the gift of the Holy Spirit yet. Which is why when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, you've got to be born of water and spirit. 
if you want to be in the kingdom of God. And of course, you turn over to Acts 2.38, you finally see both of those being brought together. But they were baptizing. Now, they weren't, Jesus wasn't doing the baptism. That's one of the things John wanted to make sure we realize. And of course, if you stop for a second and you think, why did Jesus not baptize? And the answer is real simple. I mean, if you'd been baptized by Jesus, you think you'd brag about it? I would. You know, I was baptized by Jesus. You was baptized by Peter. Ha! <laughs> Doesn't count. You know, I mean, Bartholomew, are you serious? I was baptized by Jesus himself. I think Jesus knew that. You know, it, it's bad enough being in Nashville and having to put up with all the famous preachers of Nashville. You know, just out of curiosity, how many of y'all were baptized by Ira North? Would you raise your hand? See how, see how they brag about it all the time? All you got to do is say, Did Ira, yeah, Ira North baptized me, you know. Any Batsel Barrett Baxter people? Anybody, Brother Baxter? Uh, what about uh, Jim Bill McIntyre? Oh, ba- Brother Baxter, Jim Bill McIntyre. Anybody from Brother Jim Bill? You know, I promise you there's not a preacher in the whole nation today going, any of y'all baptized by Les Chapman? I promise you there's not being asked. Jesus didn't baptize, his disciples did. All right. Text goes on, and this is where it gets interesting. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And look at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Doc mentioned the chosen. The chosen is a dramatization of the life of Jesus. It's been out now for for a couple of years. New episodes are coming out all the time. One of the newest ones was last Wednesday night. But what it does is it tries to go and do uh, do backfill into the life of the disciples. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit about that this morning. And I'm like Doc. It's one of the best I've ever watched. I mean, it portrays the disciples and Jesus in ways that I've never imagined. And it's constantly calling me to go back to Scripture and go, wow, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? And so one of the things that the chosen has really driven into my mind is that Jesus didn't do anything accidentally. And so when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he had to do it because there was a purpose in his going through it. If you know anything about Israel, back in in Jesus' day, you had Judah in the south, Samaria just north of Judah, and then you had Galilee north of that. The Jews lived either in Judea or in Galilee. They didn't live in Samaria. Samaria is where the Samaritans lived. And so a lot of times they would go to the east on the east side of the Jordan, go up, and then go back into Galilee. And so that's where the average Jew would travel, not Jesus and his disciples on this occasion. Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was someone there he wanted to meet. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. You see all of this Old Testament language coming through. This is a very significant place in the Old Testament. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And so if you can picture the scene, you've got this well. I don't know if it had a cover like this or if maybe a tree was there. But it was a deep well, and it's where people would come to draw water. One of the things we need to remember is at this time, there's no indoor plumbing. 
at least not in the average person's house. I mean, in Herod's palace, yes, he had indoor plumbing there, pretty astonishing indoor plumbing, but the average person, no. And so you would have to go and draw water in the morning, in the evening, every day. I still remember when I was a child, just a little bit small child, my grandparents still didn't have indoor plumbing. And, and I remember going up to the spring, which is about 50 yards away, and taking the bucket and getting fresh water and bringing it back. And we always kept a pail of water by the door. That's where you got your water that you drank. How many of y'all have ever drank out of a dipper? Boy, okay, a lot more people than I realize. Now, by the way, there's a certain way you drink out of a dipper. You get more water than you actually want. You drink what you want and then use what's left to swish it out and throw it out so that you sanitize it. Makes a lot of sense, don't it? By the way, I noticed back then we weren't as sick as we are today. Maybe if we just drank after each other all the time, that would solve that problem. But, but I remember that. I still remember that from when I was a child. Well, that was Jesus' world. And so Jesus is go, goes to this well, and he's there at noon. There's no one else there, and the Bible says he's tired. Again, going back to the chosen, they have an episode where Jesus heals all day, and at the end of the day, he comes back to his tent, and he is absolutely exhausted. And I remember watching that episode thinking, wow, did Jesus get tired like that? John says, yes, he did. He's been walking all morning. He's tired. And so he sits down at the well, and the text tells us, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the reason was, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. You can see Jesus saying, y'all go into town, y'all get something to eat, I'm going to sit here and rest. And so here he is, as this woman comes up, and I don't know if she's carrying, you know, jars of water like you picture here. Some women would carry them on their heads. But she's coming to the well Middle of the day, and, and by the way, over in Israel, ask Rodney, from basically February till November, it's hot. <laughs> I mean, it gets really warm, especially in the summertime. And so we don't know what time of year, but anyway, Jesus is needing something to drink. Now, it's at this point that John does something amazing. You see, John is hoping that you heard Stan's lesson from last week. Because the story of Nicodemus is being contrasted with the story of this woman. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is wanting us to see this contrast of characters. I mean, notice how it begins. You've got a Jewish man. You've got a Samaritan woman. By the way, the Samaritans, the Samaritans were a different group of people. Uh, basically 700 years earlier, the northern tribes, what was called Israel, got carried away into Assyrian captivity. But they left behind the poor. They left behind the old. They left behind the real young. I mean, they carried away the people that they could use, kind of like slave labor. And so you had a mixture of people that was left. Then the Assyrians brought Gentiles in, and they began to intermarry. Now, what's interesting about it is if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that those Gentiles who came in did not know who Yahweh was, did not know how to worship Yahweh, and God got upset, and he sent in the lions. 
one of the strangest texts in all the Bible. I mean, the lions started coming in and killing people all over this area. And when they inquired why, the response came back, because the people are not worshiping Yahweh correctly. And the Assyrians, of all people, sent priests in to teach these people how to worship Yahweh. Now, they ended up going their own way with that. And so you had a worship of Yahweh Samaritan style, you had a worship of Yahweh Jewish style, and those didn't line up. And so the Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. For those of you who watch Harry Potter, they're muggles, okay? They're this strange group of people that they're not Jewish purebloods. And the Samaritans saw the Jews as kind of being these snobby people who thought they had everything right. And so they didn't like each other. Natural animosity there. Jewish man, Samaritan woman. Pharisee. Religious elite. Morally questionable woman. We'll talk more about that in a moment. A member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the Jewish council. It's the Congress of the Jewish nation. Made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. We're made up of Republicans and Democrats. Not a lot of difference there. And so you've got these two different groups of people who make it up. He's a member of them. She's an outcast. She's a Samaritan, but she's an outcast even among the outcasts. I mean, she's coming at noon for a reason. She doesn't want to see the other women from the village. She doesn't want to talk to them. She doesn't want to interact with them. We'll talk about why here in a moment. With Nicodemus, Jesus begins talking about a new birth, and he thinks she's talking about, uh, or he's, he thinks that Jesus is talking about a physical birth. I mean, is it possible for me to go back into my mother's womb? With the Samaritan woman, Jesus talks about living water. She thinks he's talking about literal water, physical water. And so she's confused. So you see this confusion on both of them. And in the case of Nicodemus, Nicodemus sought out Jesus. I would love to know how he did that. I would love to know who he contacted. I would love to know how it was arranged, why it was at night. I mean, so many questions that we don't have answers to. We we can use the imagination. That's what the the series The Chosen does. It kind of fills in those gaps, at least with a possibility of here's what happened. But Nicodemus sought out Jesus. In the case of this woman, she was sought by Jesus. I love that. Jesus came to meet her. Have you ever thought of what it would be like for somebody knocking on your door? You go to the door and there's a stranger there. A stranger that invites themselves into your house. And before long is talking to you about things that you're like, how in the world does this person know this? Jesus sought her out. And how glad she was that he did. Nicodemus struggles. Boy, he struggles big time. It takes until the crucifixion before he finally steps out and says, all right, I'm one of his disciples. Whereas this Samaritan woman believes immediately. I mean, she is the first person, evidently in the Gospels, who when she says, we know that the Messiah has come, that's me. I mean, she is the first one who is revealed to that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And I mean, all at once, it's like, wow. 
And so an amazing, amazing insight here. And what we see occurring here is that Jesus is tearing down walls and building bridges. Jesus wasn't about building walls. He wasn't about keeping distance, socially distancing himself from people. Okay, I get the reason we do that, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But Jesus was about getting to know people. And here he is, and he's going to start tearing down walls, and he's going to start building bridges that if we just pause for a moment and step back, it causes us to scratch our head and go, wow. And then to ask ourselves a very serious question. If we follow him, will we too tear down walls and build bridges? Can you ask yourself that question? I mean, are you willing to follow Jesus in that area? Watch some of the walls he tore down. First was simply the wall of silence. Again, we read over this and we just pass right over it. We need to pause just for a moment. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, we go through that like that is every day, normal practices. It was not. This woman didn't expect Jesus to speak to her and the average Jew would have never spoken to her. That simply wasn't a part of the culture they were in. It's kind of like I have preached how that some families are what I call I love you families. They say it, they show it. Other families are like, no, I'm not going to say it. That's not part of our tradition. And I mean, it's like pulling teeth with them. I was a part of that type of family at first. Now I'm a part of, you know, the I love you family. And and here is Jesus speaking to a woman that no other Jew would have spoken to. And so here's my question to you. How many people do I? I want to put myself up there first. Do you, do we, pass every day and we don't even acknowledge their existence? I mean, the lady at the checkout counter. The guy that cuts your hair. The person that takes your groceries out to your car. I mean, how many people do you encounter, you know, at the bank? And and the list just goes on and on at work. Your next door neighbor. And you never say a word to them. You never even acknowledge their presence. I love this question in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at a, a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. A woman's come in. Who, who is a sinner. I mean, she obviously has a bad reputation. She comes to Jesus, weeping at his feet, takes her hair down, between, begins to wipe them, to kiss them, to anoint them with, with, with perfume. And Simon's looking, and Jesus asks him a question. Simon, do you see this woman? And I can't help but wonder how many times Jesus looks at us and says, did you see that guy? Did you see that woman? And of course, if you go back in the text, Simon would have said, of course. Notice, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. You see, he saw a sinner. Jesus did. He saw an outcast. Jesus did. Can I ask you a question? When you see people, what do you see? Do you see the color of their skin? 
Do you see the kind of clothes they're wearing? The car they're driving? Maybe the house they live in? The sign they're holding up? What do you see? Because if there's anything that Jesus is trying to teach us in this text, is it's time for us to see people the way he saw people. He saw people as the imago Dei. A Latin phrase that simply means someone created in the image of God. He didn't see a sinner. He didn't see a tax collector. He didn't even see a Pharisee. He saw someone created in the image of God. And I've got to be honest with you. I don't always see that. I oftentimes see these other things that we put up first. And I'm sure Jesus whispers in my ear quite frequently, do you see that man? Do you not see that woman? And if there's anything he's calling us to is break down the wall of silence and see people and engage them. Number two, the social ethnic wall. I mean, all you have to notice is that Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman, Samaritans, Jew, Jew. I mean, it's so obvious the wall that's here between these two groups of people. And Jesus simply wades into it, intentionally went to Samaria. I mean, if I could ask you a question, when was the last time you intentionally tried to reach out to anyone different from you? Jesus did it on multiple occasions. Here in Luke chapter 9, he's going through Samaria. A village will not accept him because he's on his way to Jerusalem. James and John wants to call fire down from heaven and burn them up. What did Jesus do? He simply said to them, no, you're not going to do that. He rebuked them and then he went on to the next village. See, Jesus wasn't concerned whether people would accept him or not. He just kept scattering seed. And he reached out to everyone. I love the fact that when you turn over to Acts chapter 8 and Philip goes to Samaria a few months after, you know, the church is established and Jesus is ascended back to heaven, what happens? He finds converts ready to obey the gospel everywhere. Why? Because of the seed Jesus was not afraid to plant in Samaria. And so with whom have you intentionally reached out recently in order to break down social and ethnic walls? And and let me say a word here of thanks to so many in this church. Because many of you do this on a regular basis. Many of you go to the jails. You go to the prisons. Many of you volunteered a couple of weeks ago, Rodney, to go up to Camp Cope and to help with children of the incarcerated. Many of you are signing up for programs. We've got an ad in the bulletin today for anyone interested in Hispanic ministry. And I know that there will be people here in this church who will say, sign me up. I mean, we need to reach across barriers and build bridges. Back, you may remember back in January, we were were talking about how do you do that? And George Pendergrass came in and simply talked about how do you break down racial barriers. And after we got through, George and I got to talking and discovered that we had so much stuff in common. I mean, it was just amazing. We're we're about two weeks apart in our birthdays. We both went to Christian colleges. We both wanted to go into the ministry. We both married our, our, our teenage sweethearts. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And George said to me, Leslie, we need to get together and build bridges just between us. 
And I said, you're right. And, and a few weeks ago, he, he texted me and he said, are we going to do this or not? And I wrote him back and I said, absolutely. And we've gotten together and just had the best time trying to get to know one another. Building bridges, not walls. When was the last time you intentionally did it? And then number three is the big one, the gender wall. Jesus broke that one down. We don't realize the meaning when it says the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, he spoke to her. I mean, one of the things you find in Scripture that is so amazing, and and Doc the Chosen has helped me with this so much, is how many women were involved in the ministry of Jesus. You turn over to Luke chapter 8, and again, we read through it so fast, we don't pause to realize, wow, this was scandalous. Look at the text. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. The twelve were with him and also some women. One of the things that did not happen in the first century in Judea was that you didn't have women following rabbis. That was absolutely unheard of. And look at the text here. First you had Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. That's one of the things I appreciate about The Chosen is it really focuses on Mary, and you'll see why here in just a moment. But notice others. Mary, demon-possessed. Joanna, whose husband is the manager of Herod's household. Someone with a high position. A woman by the name of Susanna. And many others. And then what I love is this part. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I want y'all to think about that. Where did Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew get the money to buy the food that they ate? It came from women who said, we're here, Jesus, to support you in any way we can. If you need our money, it's yours. And Jesus said, we need your money. <laughs> and what I love about it is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, do you remember the first witness of the resurrection? Mary's at the tomb. She came to the tomb early that morning. She went to the apostles. They've taken his body. She came back to the tomb. She's sitting there weeping. She's crying. She is distraught. She sees someone walk up. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, if you'll just tell me where you've taken him, I'll go get him. And Jesus then says to her, Mary, a voice that she was so familiar with, and she goes over and hollers, Rabbi, Rabboni, teacher, and then grabs a hold of his feet. I mean, I love to picture that in my mind. She just literally reaches, grabs his feet, and Jesus says, you got to let go. I'm reminded of my grandkids. You know, sometimes when they get ready to leave, they'll come over and wrap themselves around my leg and say, I don't want to leave. And I go, here, I'll take him to the car, you know. <laughs> no, I don't do that. June wouldn't let me. But Jesus says to her, you go and tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and Mary, your father, their father, to my God and your God. And Mary went to the disciples with the news. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Mary was the first one to preach the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She announced it to the apostles of all people. 
And what you find as you go through Scripture is Paul saying, listen, we need to realize that in Christ Jesus, there's no Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And, and brothers and sisters, listen to me. It's time we rethink this whole process of gender in the church. Because the problem that we have is that if you were raised like I was, the way that you look at gender in the church has far more to do with the traditions you were raised with than with book, chapter, and verse. I challenge you to find otherwise. I mean, it's time we open up the Bible and look at what the Bible said about gender in the ministry of Jesus and in the life of the early church. Let me give you a simple example. When I was a kid growing up, I remember sermon after sermon about how that women need to be the keepers of the home. That men are the breadwinners, women are the keepers of the home. Ladies, you better not be out there getting a career or getting a job, becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. You know, that's not your role. And for some reason, no one ever preached Proverbs 31 about women's roles. I mean, let me tell you something. You turn over to Proverbs 31, the worthy woman, the woman that is honored so much, and here's a lady, is she the keeper of the home? She is. She manages the home. She's a businesswoman. She sells products. I mean, she's got property that she goes out and buys. She plants her own vineyard. She has her own money. And Solomon says, by the way, if you can find a woman like that, you better grab her. And by the way, I read it what she did, and I read about what I do, and I get embarrassed because I can't measure up to that. You know, I don't know why we skip those texts. We have a way of cherry-picking what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe. And it's time that we go back and rethink gender roles in the church. Now, are there, you know, certain lines we need to draw? Probably are. But I suspect there are far fewer than what we've drawn. And then finally, there's this moral wall, or next to the last, there's this moral wall. Here's a woman when Jesus says, I want you to go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus' response is, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five. Five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And I think we're so quick to jump and talk about what kind of woman is she that she just simply moves from man to man to man to man. I don't think that's what happened. As I've thought about it over the years, you know, why would there be a woman married to five different men and then finally just living with someone? And if I can be honest with you, I know men, at least I think I do. And I think what happened is that when she was maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, oftentimes they got married young. She was a beautiful young lady. And a guy decided, that's who I want to be my wife. And they arranged it, and he married her. But you see, in the first century, one of the things you've got to remember is that children was everything. You see, today we have something called Social Security. In Jesus' day, they called that K-I-D-S. Okay? That's how you spell Social Security. You had kids. And the more of them you had, the better you were taken care of. And, and if you had someone you were married to who couldn't have kids, guess what? You had to find someone that could. And if I was a betting man, I would say that here was this beautiful young lady, but for some reason her and her husband couldn't have kids, and so her husband divorced her to marry someone who could. She's still a beautiful woman. 
And another guy in the village sees her and says, she's free to be married now. And you know what? I bet you anything it was his fault, not her fault. And so this guy marries her. No kids again. Number three comes along. Number four comes along. Number five comes along. And finally, after number five, she's not as attractive as she was when she was 17. She's now maybe in her late 30s, beyond childbearing age, at least normally. And all at once, what you find with this culture is now she's just turned loose. And all she can find now is someone who will let let her live with them. And what I love about Jesus is that he reminds her, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. He doesn't condemn her. He shares with her the good news of who he is. In fact, he's been accused of being a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's there for her specifically. And it's time that we quit judging people and start sharing the grace that's been shared with us. If Jesus didn't judge when he came, I don't know why we think we should. The Bible says that she went immediately and began to tell people, this, this man's told me everything that I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? And the entire Samaritan village came out and Jesus ended up staying two whole days there, which probably explains why when Philip went up there, it didn't take hardly anything for people to obey the gospel. And I hope today it's the same way. I hope that when we see who Jesus really is and what he's really done and what he invites us to, then being a part of the baptismal ministry of Jesus now with the gift of the Holy Spirit becomes absolutely, yes, I want to take part of that. And if you need to take part in it, why don't you do it right now? As together we stand and sing.